seems like a long time ago, but uh, I believe that we uh, finished the last reading somewhere in the middle of chapter 8, Unsupported and Unsupportive Consciousness, and I think we got to the reading with the uh, sunlight coming through the, the wall and not landing on the floor. Thank you. I knew someone would remember. I have it marked, but uh, there's a few things marked here. So, uh, <clears throat> if you remember, this chapter was, uh, as it's called, unsupported and unsupportive consciousness. And um, there's this image of not giving things a, a place to land. Uh, and uh, also, the um, we had the uh, the readings from um, Lumpur Dun and Lumpur Cha about... Um, Particularly interesting, and I think uh, significant in terms of, of Dhamma practice about uh, the um, different uh, emotions and, uh, and using the example particularly of, of anger, where um, when somebody asked Lumpur Dun, um, uh, do you still have any anger left? Lumpur answered, yes, but I don't receive or accept it. Uh, me, der my ao. Or um, uh, in another exchange with him, when somebody asked him, Lumpudun, what do I do to destroy anger completely? Lumpu answered, there isn't anybody who destroys it completely, but when it is known fully, it ceases by itself. So I thought before carrying on with the, the next reading, uh, there, there's a very interesting teaching, um, a short teaching in the <coughs> Anguttara Nikaya, which is kind of related to this and a little bit tangential. But it's a place where the Buddha talks about what an arahant is incapable of doing. So when we talk about um, the precepts, often we think that it's sort of a, uh, rules about what you shouldn't do or what you should do and such like. But uh, this is one of those those places where the teachings refer to the the, sort of the natural disposition of the enlightened mind. And this is in the Book of the Nines in the Anguttara Nikaya. And uh, there's two, two closely related suttas that come one after the other. So one is sutta number seven and the other is sutta number eight. And both of these are where the Buddha is talking to wanderers of uh, different groups. So the first one is to a wanderer called uh, Suttava, and this uh, took place up on the vulture's peak. And so uh, uh, the dialogue has, has opened up and um, the Buddha has... Says to Suttava, Yes, Suttava, you heard that correctly, grasped it correctly, attended to it correctly, remembered it correctly. In the past, Suttava, and also now, I say thus A bhikkhu who is an arahant, one whose taints are destroyed, one who is completely liberated through final knowledge, is incapable of transgression in nine cases. One, he is incapable of intentionally depriving a living being of life. Two, he is incapable of taking by way of theft what is not given. Three, he is incapable of engaging in sexual intercourse. Four, he is incapable of deliberately speaking falsehood. So those match the uh, first four of the eight precepts very closely. Then number five is very interesting. You might think that alcohol comes in here, but it doesn't. Instead, what comes in is um, he is incapable of storing things up in order to enjoy sensual pleasures as he did in the past when a layman. So an arahant does not store things for the future. 
So it's uh, interesting that the principle of renunciation, again, it's what we think of as going without um, or making do, that's uh, equally a principle of the enlightened mind. So. Then, uh, number six, he is incapable of rejecting the Buddha. Seven, he is incapable of rejecting the Dhamma. Eight, he is incapable of rejecting the Sangha. And nine, he is incapable of rejecting the training, so that if one is a monastic, then it's in, uh, a monastic who is enlightened is incapable of disrobing. They can't deliberately leave the training. So the next sutta, uh, interestingly enough, the first, uh, the first five are the same, and then the last four are different. And in this case, it's, he's talking to a, a wanderer called Sajha, not Sajha as in truth, but Sajha, S-A-J-J-H-A. And the last four in this uh, instance is, uh, he, um, he is incapable of entering upon a wrong course on account of desire, seven on account of hatred, eight on account of delusion, and nine, he's incapable of entering upon a wrong course on account of fear. That means following a, a course of action or, or acting in a way. So the last four are not being able to, be, uh, to act based on desire, on hatred, on delusion, or on fear. So I feel that's, that's kind of related to the, um, these comments by Lumpur Cha and uh, Lumpur Dun about um, those uh, impulses might arise or those impressions might be there, but they're, they're not acted on. So for one who is a, an arahant, it's like the, the, the tongue can't, uh, can't form a lie. The, the hand can't reach to take something that, that, that does not belong. And uh, the, uh, the, no action can be, can be taken to deliberately deprive a living being of life. It's like the, the system won't, won't support it. So that it's a, a, different, a slightly different uh, way of, uh, of, uh, of looking at that, but I feel it's a very significant teaching. So if you want to remember that, it's number seven and number eight in the Book of the Nines. So we go back to our text, and this is uh, uh, reading number 25 in this chapter. And this is from the Sutta Nipata. One who is independent does not tremble. One who is dependent clutches, grasps existence one way or another, and thus is unable to escape samsara. Consider this dark consequence. There is danger in dependence. Therefore, rely on nothing. Sorry, therefore, relying on nothing, the mindful bhikkhu travels on, free from clinging. And the next one is um, a teaching by the Buddha to his son, Rahula. And uh, he's uh, already gone through a uh, succession of reflections on the four elements, teaching Rahula to use uh, visualization and reflection on earth, water, fire, and wind. And then he talks about meditation on space. Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as space is not established anywhere, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like space. For when you develop meditation that is like space, arisen agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So this, uh, this first reading... Um, uh, he's using the same kind of language about uh, being independent. The one who is dependent, 
Um, it echoes the, the one of the previous readings. You probably won't remember from three weeks ago. With one attached is unreleased, one, uh, one unattached is released. So one attached is unreleased, one unattached is released. Um, and uh, <coughs> using that, that kind of imagery, so one who is independent does not tremble. One who is dependent clutches, grasps existence one way or another. So dependent meaning the mind has settled on being something or is identified with some particular state or perception or quality of identification. And that uh, seeing uh, there is this dark consequence, there is danger in dependence, therefore relying on nothing, the mindful bhikkhu, tra the mindful bhikkhu travels on free from clinging. So this uh, <coughs> It's, it's also interesting that part of our monastic training is taking dependence. <laughs> so it's one of those uh, one of those things. It's like you confine yourself in a vehicle, you get into a car, and you strap yourself in in order to go great distances. So you confine yourself in a little tin box and strap yourself in so that you can go places. So in a similar way, monastic life, you take dependence on a teacher, you uh, and uh, uh, say commit yourself to a relationship to uh, community and to um, guidance from uh, experienced people. But the point of that dependency is that it's a dependency that, like getting into a, a car or a train, it's a, it's a confinement that uh, is a support for liberation. So that um, this quality of um, relying on nothing is, uh, is in terms of, of, uh, of an, an internal attitude arising from, from insight. The teaching to Rahula, the Buddha's son, is also reminiscent of, uh, if you remember, way, way back in January, um, there was uh, uh, passages from the Melinda Panha, the questions of King Melinda, and um, similarly using the image of, of space and how um, the elder Nagasena is talking to King uh, Melinda and describing how Nibbana is like space. And the passage there, this is um, from uh, uh, Sutta number, it's the entry number 12 in chapter 1. Just as space is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of birds, presents no obstacles, is endless. So also, Nibbāna is not produced, does not age, does not suffer death, does not pass out of existence, does not come into existence, cannot be forcibly handled, cannot be carried away by thieves, rests on nothing, is the pathway of the noble, presents no obstacles, is endless. So this is the advice that the Buddha is giving to, to Rahula, and he's, uh, a lot of it's to do with uh, emotional stability, and he uses the image of being like earth, or being like water, being like fire, being like air. That uh, you know, these uh, the elements are not disturbed by what happens within them, or what happens to them, or what takes place um, in relationship to them. Uh, then the final one of the of the series is is space, and uh, and it's using this as a sort of uh, um, an evocation of the quality of insight and this, this uh, unentangled awareness. Uh, just as space is not established anywhere, 
so too Rahula develop meditation that is like space. So an attitude that is not established anywhere, that's not dependent on, on anything. A final discourse that refers to this area sums up the essence of these teachings very succinctly. It also presages some other teachings that we will look at in the upcoming chapters, notably those in chapter 9 and chapter 11, where the Buddha speaks of how to evade the king of death by meditating on emptiness, and also in chapter 12 on the Heart Sutra. So this is a, uh, uh, a sutta from uh, the Sanyutanikaya uh, in the fourth, uh, nida, uh, the fourth section of the Sanyutta, which I think is the Mara Sanyutta, if I remember correctly. At Savati. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One was instructing exhorting, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus with a Dhamma talk concerning Nibbāna. And those bhikkhus were listening to the Dhamma with eager ears, attending to it as a, vital, a matter of vital concern, applying their whole minds to it. Then it occurred to Mara, the evil one, this ascetic Gotama is instructing, exhorting, inspiring, and gladdening the bhikkhus, and so on, who are applying their whole minds to it. Let me approach the ascetic Gotama in order to confound them, to confuse them or upset them or distract them. Then Mara, the evil one, manifested himself in the form of a farmer carrying a large plough on his shoulder, holding a long goad, a stick, and his hair dishevelled, wearing hempen garments, his feet smeared with mud. He approached the Blessed One and said to him, Maybe you've seen oxen, ascetic. What are oxen to you, evil one? So uh, if you can't quite follow that, it's like Mara's thinking, oh no, all these good people are getting these great teachings on Nibbana. They're going to escape my realm. They're going to have um, uh, uh, understanding and uh, develop and they're going to be liberated. What can I do to distract them and confuse them? So it's like somebody coming in here um, with a uh, um, carrying a... Um, a, a tire lever or a, or a spanner saying, my car's broken down, can anybody help? You know, I've, I've, my engine's just fallen out in your driveway, can anyone give me a hand? So it's that kind of thing. So he shows up as a sort of bedraggled farmer saying, my cows have gone missing, can anyone see my cows? But of course, uh, as always happens in these, uh, these stories, the Buddha uh, recognizes um, Mara straight away. What are oxen to you, evil one? So <clears throat> Mara doesn't give up, even though he suspects he might have been spotted. <clears throat> he, he tries to push his point. And so he responds by saying, The eye is mine, the eye, E-Y-E, The eye is mine, ascetic, forms are mine, eye contact and its base of consciousness are mine. Where can you go, ascetic, to escape from me? The ear is mine, ascetic. Sounds are mine. The nose is mine, ascetic. Odors are mine. The tongue is mine, ascetic. Tastes are mine. The body is mine, ascetic. Tactile objects are mine. The mind is mine, ascetic. Mental phenomena are mine. Mind contact and its base of consciousness are mine. Where can you go, ascetic, to escape from me? The Buddha responds, The eye is yours, evil one. Forms are yours. Eye contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But, evil one, where there is no eye, no forms, no eye contact, and its base of consciousness, 
There is no place for you there, evil one. And so too with the other senses. The ear is yours, evil one. Sounds are yours. Ear contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But evil one, where there is no ear, no sounds, no ear contact and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. The nose is yours, evil one. Odors are yours. Nose contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But evil one, where there is no nose, no odors, no nose contact and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. The tongue is yours, evil one. Tastes are yours. Tongue contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But, evil one, where there is no tongue, no tastes, no tongue contact and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. The body is yours, evil one. Tactile objects are yours. Body contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But, evil one, where there is no body, no tactile objects, no body contact and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. The mind is yours, evil one. Mental phenomena are yours. Mind contact and its base of consciousness are yours. But, evil one, where there is no mind, no mental phenomena, no mind contact and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. Then Mara responds, That of which you say, it's mine, and those who speak in terms of mine, if your mind exists among these, you won't escape me, ascetic. The Buddha responds, That which they speak of is not mine. I am not one of those who speak of mine. You should know thus, O evil one, even my path you will not see. Then Mara, the evil one, realizing, The blessed one knows me, the fortunate one knows me, sad and disappointed, disappeared right there. Curses! Foiled again. So Mara does come across as a kind of uh, comic villain with sort of curly black moustache, <laughs> big black hat, and a cloak. Ha! <laughs> but it's a, it is a kind of um, uh, it's a playful form, so that the, you do get this uh, Mara as a sort of curses foiled again, a sort of uh, comic book villain. Uh, but uh, that's part of the the mythology and the usefulness the usefulness of the mythology. So uh, this passage um, relates closely to a, um, a few of the other teachings that, uh, that as, as it says, we'll, we'll come across. There's this um, very significant teaching uh, from the Udana, the Buddha's inspired utterances, um, which we'll come to in the next chapter, where the Buddha says, there is that sphere, that ayat, it's called an ayatana in Pali, that that mode of being, that's, there is a sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire, nor wind. No sphere of infinity of space, of infinity of consciousness, of nothingness, or even neither perception nor non-perception. There there is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This sphere, this ayatana, I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution, and no support. This, just this, is the end of Dukkha. It's also related to uh, uh, another passage that, um, if we manage to get to it this winter retreat, <laughs> is uh, off in uh, chapter 14. And this is uh, another very significant teaching um, about uh, the senses and uh, about uh, 
the the world. So this uh, this is a particular teaching. When we think of the world, we assume this means the planet Earth or the the universe with its stars and galaxies and whatnot. But this is a, a very significant teaching, in, in, uh, as it points to exactly what the Buddha means when he talks about the world, loka. And so this is uh, Sutta number 116 in the 35th section of the Sangita Nikaya. On the, that's the section on the six senses. And it's after the Buddha has made a, state, a brief statement, and then I think it's Mahakachana um, explains uh, what the Buddha means. And he was the one, the monk who had the, the, uh, the best ability, the most comprehensive ability of explaining in detail things that the Buddha had said in brief. Friends, so this is Mahakachana speaking. Friends, when the Blessed One rose from his seat and entered his dwelling after reciting a synopsis in brief, without expanding the meaning in detail, that is, he said, Bhikkhus, I say that the end of the world cannot be known, seen, or reached by traveling, yet because I also say that without reaching the end of the world, there is no making an end to suffering. So you can't get, if you don't get to the end of the world, you don't get to the end of suffering. I understand the detailed meaning of this synopsis as follows. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, this is called the world in the noble one's discipline. And what, friends, is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world and a conceiver of the world? So that's Lokasanyi is a perceiver of the world and Lokamani is a conceiver of the world. The I is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. The ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind, is that in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world. That in the world by which one is a perceiver of the world, a conceiver of the world, that is called the world in the noble one's discipline. That's also related to the... Uh, discourse to uh, Rohitasa, this deva, when the deva um, has uh, said to the Buddha, um, I spent my, let's see, Rohitasa is where, Rohitasa that we read earlier in this chapter, chapter 8, where um, Rohitasa said, and he's a deva that's appeared to, to the Buddha and uh, is speaking to the Buddha in um, this dialogue. In me, Lord, there arose the wish. I will get to the end of the world by walking. So he's talking about a previous life when he was a, a yogi, a, a meditator. I walked thus for a hundred years without sleeping and pausing only to eat and drink and answer the calls of nature. Even though I exerted myself thus for a hundred years, I did not reach the end of the world. And eventually, I died on the journey. To this the Buddha replied, It's true that one cannot reach the end of the world by walking, but... Unless one reaches the end of the world, one will not reach the end of dukkha. It is in this fathom-long body. It's a, a fathom is six feet, so a two-meter-long body, two meters-ish. With its perceptions and ideas, that this world, its origin, its cessation, and the way leading to its cessation are to be found. One who knows the world goes to the world's end. One who lives the holy life with heart serene, they understand the world's end and do not hanker for this world or another. 
So this is a um, this dialogue with Mara. The Buddha is saying, um, uh, yeah, if you believe in the uh, in seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, then you are believing in Mara's world. That's the world of beginnings and endings. That's the world of birth and death. But he, uh, but the Buddha is very patiently and uh, persistently saying, but that's not the whole story, Mara. <laughs> That's a, yes, that that's that's the realm of of birth and death. That's the uh, uh, the conditioned uh, realm. But that's not the whole story. That's not the absolute reality. That's not the 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 the, the full picture. And uh, if the and the Mara and Mara is trying to present it, saying, "Well, this is the whole thing. You know, this is uh, this and this is my realm. This all belongs to me." And the Buddha is saying, "Well, yes, good for you." <laughs> But this is your realm. Congratulations, but that's uh, uh, that's not uh, something that you know the the mind needs to be identified with, and so uh, that uh, is a, a way of of say <coughs> also pointing out that as Ajahn Chah, who was a genius at um, sort of summarizing these these teachings in very practical and tangible ways. He said, if you seek for satisfaction in that which cannot satisfy, you're bound to be disappointed. If you seek, if you seek for security in that which is insecure, you're bound to be disappointed. So that's a very brief way of putting it, but uh, extremely uh, uh, compre- comprehensive. It covers the whole, uh, the whole territory. And the Buddha is simply saying, um, I'm not seeking for security in that which is insecure. <laughs> So before going on to the next section, yes, Ajahn Chittapala, right on to you. <laughs> I haven't missed you, but I'm very happy to hear your questions. I never miss anybody. So. Don't take it personally. I um, a bit puzzled about the um, way the dialogue goes between Mara and the Buddha. So. The eyes mind, the form of the mind, uh, high consciousness, or the base of unconscious, uh, form, uh, eye mm-hmm. consciousness, and then so on. And the Buddha says, yes, but where there is no eye, no form, no uh, base of consciousness. So, something like that. He said, there is no place for you there, evil one. Yeah. So then... I wonder, in terms of practice, what that means. Does it mean I have to dwell in the formless jhanas in order to be out of reach of Mara? (laughs) Or, as soon as I open my eyes, I'm actually in the world of Mara? Well, you don't have to be. That's That's the point of it, is that if there's that belief of this is real, like seeing is real, mind, this I consciousness, this... This is something that's that's absolutely uh, genuine and believed in in its own terms. Then you're, the, the mind has been born into Mara's realm. If it's if there's an awareness of of oh this is just seeing, this is just this this is not anything that's substantial or real. Because I mean that that would satisfy satisfy my my little understanding a bit more because it's so absolute when, the, when there's form I was form there's uh, eye consciousness or the base of eye consciousness oh 
Well, it's like when the Buddha... Oh, the time in, in the realm of uh, Mara. And in a way, yes, it's a good reminder, you know, to, to uh, wonder how to deal with these things. But then the, the last two verses, which is the um, um, kind of conclusion, mm-hmm. it's said slightly differently. So it's... And that, that I find easier to understand. Mm. So what you said is something I would wish to read, but mm. that was not what was in the dialogue between them. But the last two verses have, have are a little bit closer to, to what you said. Yeah, the last two verses, Mara says, that of which they say, it's mine, and those who speak in terms of mine, if your mind exists among these, you won't escape me, ascetic. Mm. And the Buddha responds, that which they speak of is not mine. I'm not one of those who speak of mine. You should know thus, O evil one, even my path you will not see. And so that that's, uh, it's like that the, there's this kind of, it, it comes across as, as this, uh, as a kind of nihilist or a, a, a like the eye is bad or the seeing is bad or, or hearing the sense world, the mind is, is bad. Or that, or that teaching from the Udana, where the Buddha says there, are, there is that ayatana, that sphere of being, where there is no sun, no moon, no stars. You, you know, hearing that, people think, hmm, well, I, don't, I like the moon and the stars. <laughs> and where would we be without the sun? Yeah. And so uh, there's no earth, water, fire, or wind. Um, and so that's not talking about some sort of uber heaven off in the in a different realm where those things don't exist. It's talking about an attitude towards the material realm as it's experienced, towards the, uh, the, the sun, the moon, the stars, and, and all of that, and even those refined states of consciousness. It's, like it's speaking about the, the, the seeing the fundamentally empty nature of, of, you know, of all of that. That's how I understand it. And so when the, the Buddha is saying, um, uh, where there is no eye, no forms, no eye contact, and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there. So the island is that awareness that knows the eye, that knows eye consciousness, is that awareness that isn't those things. It's the, the, the island that you cannot go beyond. That the island is that, oh, this is seeing, this is hearing, this is thinking. This is, uh, the, uh, the, the, it's, it knows it, but it's not identified with it. Like in the Buddha saying about the, the world, you know, one who knows the world, one who knows the world goes to the world's end. It's right there. There's that knowing, the loko vidu, like, oh, this is just the world. Aha, that's all. Aha. <laughs> it doesn't mean, you know, the, the entire universe evaporates. The, 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 the flow of, of conditions uh, the four elements in the, the material world, it all functions according to its laws and its, and its patterns of karma, you know, and uh, <clears throat> so on and so forth. But that the, the world's end is this moment where they recognize, oh, there isn't really an Ajahn Chittapala. <laughs> Language doesn't really exist. It's just a, a, a very... Uh, very useful set of of, uh, of uh, illusory forms that we can 
used to help the mind awaken. Besteht? I mean, the, that makes the, sense. The, the, it makes complete sense, and I thank you because when when I read this, it doesn't. It says where there's no I, there's no. So I, I take it like this. And no, it's not. It's not literal. It's it's not like a some sort of sort of super jhana where you're well, like the cessation of perception and feeling. Yeah. It's not that at all. Yeah. Oh, in, in terms of nibbana, right? The parinibbana. So I is gone. Yeah, it's but not talking about parinibbana. But if it goes to the nibbana here and now, I need a bit translation help. <laughs> that makes sense to people follow. It's for you, so if it's if it's confusing or not clear, speak up. Yeah, thank you. Okay. <clears throat> Lastly, in this chapter, we will look at some related passages from the Northern Buddhist tradition. Here is a section of the Platform Sutra, also known as the Dharma Jewel Platform Sutra, otherwise known as the Sutra of Huineng. At this point in the story, Huineng is a teenage layman working in a, as a lowly seller of firewood as an only child trying to support his widowed mother. So this is from China, and uh, the Chinese uh, Buddhist canon and uh, this is one of my uh, very favorite uh, favorite books. Um, my two uh, favorite Dharma books, The Life of the Buddha by Bhikkhun Yanamoli, is my most favorite one. And um, the second favorite one is the Dharma Jewel Platform Sutra uh, with Master Hua's commentary, um, which is uh, I'm sure we've got copies of in the, the library here. But it's a, it's a, a wonderfully insightful and great read as well. So this uh, Hui Neng lived in. Um, in China about 1300 years ago, um, in the Tang dynasty, I believe. And uh, this, uh, this sutra is the only one in the Chinese canon that is from after the Buddha's time, that is sort of, uh, has been included in the, in the Chinese canon in the relatively recent era. So this is from the first chapter of the sutra, of uh, the Platform Sutra, called Action and intention. Once a customer bought firewood and ordered it delivered to his shop. When the delivery had been made and Hui Neng had received the money, he went outside the gate, where he noticed a customer reciting a sutra. Upon once hearing the words of this sutra, quote, one should produce the thought that is nowhere supported. Hui Neng's mind immediately opened to enlightenment. The passage he describes as having heard actually comes from the Vajra, the Diamond Sutra, one of the most influential wisdom teachings of the Northern School. And this is from Chapter 10 of the Vajra Sutra, The Adornment of Pure Lands. Therefore, Subhuti, the Bodhisattva, Mahasattva, should produce a pure heart. They should realize and develop the heart which does not dwell in forms, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects or dharmas. They should realize and develop the heart that dwells nowhere. So it doesn't take much to see. That's very, very close to these same uh, teachings about uh, not being uh, dependent, that the heart, that this, the, the mind is not um, supported, uh, does not give a, um, a basis 
for uh, the world of things that is not uh, dependent. This insight into, quote, the heart that dwells nowhere, or the mind which rests on nothing, has a very had a very powerful effect on the young man. He immediately resolved to leave the home life and study the way with the faith fifth patriarch, the great master Hung Jen at Tung Chan Monastery. Fortunately, his enthusiasm impressed other townspeople and the man made a large offering of silver to Huinang so that his mother would be provided for while the lad went off in search of spiritual riches. So all of this story is part of the, the sutra. It explains his, his background. So he lived in the south of China and was he was a teenager at this time and was trying to support his mum, who was a widow, and uh, he just gathered firewood in the forest and took it around town and, and sold it to, to make a living. But uh, he was so uh, moved by the, the this particular teaching that he heard, he, he just couldn't rest with that and wanted to find out uh, more. And he heard that um, the best, uh, wisest Dharma teacher in China was the fifth uh, patriarch of the Chan school. And so he was uh, going to travel off to, into the north of China to, uh, to meet him, to study under his guidance. Once he had arrived at the monastery, because he was both young and illiterate, as well as spiritually precocious, the patriarch gave him the job of cutting firewood and pounding rice in the kitchen. After some time, the fifth patriarch announced that he would soon pass on the patriarchy, like his life was coming to an end, so he was going to name who his successor would be. And in order to select an appropriate successor, he invited everybody to write a quote-unquote gata without marks, a verse expressing their understanding of the essence of the Buddha's wisdom. And so, if I remember correctly, there was uh, many hundreds of, of uh, monks living in the monastery at that time, so it was a really big crowd that was there. And uh, in China, in, uh, in Huineng's monastery, which was established many years later, then they still keep the... Uh, when he was working in the kitchen, in order to be... because he was kind of skinny, and uh, kind of uh, not very not very hefty uh, kind of a, a lad, he thought to give him more weight while he was trying to pound the rice, he tied this rock on a, on a rope around his waist to kind of give him more weight. And they've still got the, the rock that he tied on, uh, on his waist um, that is preserved in uh, the Nanhua Monastery in, in China today. I haven't been there, but thus have I heard. The most obvious candidate for the inheritance was the senior instructor and preceptor called Shen Xiu, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Thank you. <laughs> I won't try to repeat that. The others of the thousand-strong assembly hesitated to compose verses because they all thought that Shen Xiu uh, would be the one to receive the mantle to get the uh, appointment as the next patriarch. He, however, had major doubts about his own accomplishments, and so he wrote his verse covertly in the middle of the night on the wall of a corridor which was being decorated with some murals. So he didn't. He thought, well, I'm the senior monk here, but you know, I don't really understand things that well, but uh, I suppose I should compose a verse, and then if it gets praised, I'll claim it, but if it gets doesn't get praised, then I'll just keep quiet. So he snuck out in the middle of the night, in this corridor where they were painting these murals, they had some pots of paint and some brushes there, and so he, he wrote up this verse uh, on, the, on the wall, and then um, let the, the rest of the community see it and, and make their comments uh, 
when to his relieved amazement, the fifth patriarch praised it, so when the, the abbot came along and said, oh yes, very good, he revealed himself as the author. And so that verse uh, that he composed said, The body is a Bodhi tree. The mind is like a bright mirror stand. Time and again, brush it clean and let no dust alight. As, uh, <coughs> as, he was, as uh, Huineng was illiterate, it was not until he heard another of the residents reciting this verse to himself that Huineng found out about what Xianxiu had written. Once he had heard it, he persuaded an official who was also staying at the monastery, Chang Ji Yong, or something like that, <laughs> to transcribe it for to transcribe for him a quote unquote marvelous verse in response. And this is what Hui Neng wrote. Originally, Bodhi has no tree. The bright mirror has no stand. Originally, there is not a single thing. Where can dust alight? Suffice to say that on the strength of this, Huineng became the sixth patriarch. Even though he had to live in hiding with hunters in a remote forest for 16 years to avoid the jealous machinations of factions who objected to an illiterate barbarian from the south being given the great honor. Eventually he came forth, received ordination, and became the greatest of China's Buddhist masters. The sutra has the honor of being the only one in the Chinese canon that overtly comes from a time after the Lord Buddha. So uh, according to the story, what happened was that uh, this, uh, this other person was, uh, uh, he said, uh, uh, <coughs> Huineng uh, heard that verse and thought, well, that doesn't sound very wise to me. So he asked this other person to write up his own verse. And then um, that caused some, the next morning when that was spotted, that caused more conversation. You know, you know how gossip <laughs> carries around in monasteries. Did you hear what happened last night? Venerable Independence spotted this inscription on the corridor of the monks Vihara. <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> apparently the fifth patriarch came along and sort of took one look at it, scowled, took his shoe off and scrubbed it out and then stomped off. Well, obviously that was not very wise at all. That was no good. So, uh, <clears throat> but then um, he realized that because uh, Huineng, he was a layman, he was a teenager, he was illiterate, he couldn't, he couldn't read that he realized, if I, if I name this fellow as the, the patriarch, there's going to be a lot of trouble. Um, but he thought, well, he's the wisest one. So he, uh, he gave in the... Uh, he summoned, he, uh, through various clever means, invited him to his room, uh, again in the middle of the night. And Huineng <clears throat> showed up and he said, what are you doing here? He said, well, you invited me. <laughs> and he said, and... Uh, <clears throat> The, uh, and the way that the, the fifth patriarch had invited him was that he'd come down to the kitchen and said, you know, is the rice finished yet? And, uh, and then turned around and walked off. And then as he walked off, he, I think uh, Hui Neng saw that he, had, he held up three fingers behind his back. So, okay, he wants to see me, third watch of the night, I'll show up. <laughs> so he was pretty sharp. And so when he showed up at the fifth patriarch's room, he, he said... Uh, I'm here. He said, what are you doing here? He said, well, you told me to come. <laughs> and it's the right time. I said, okay, good lad, well done. So then he gave him the, the bowl, uh, the Buddha's bowl, apparently, and the, the robe, and named him as the next patriarch and said, you better, you better leave. 
and take care of these because you're you're definitely the a suitable uh, heir, a suitable inheritor of the uh, of the the role of patriarch. But um, they'll never accept you because you're illiterate and you're so young and you're a layman. So um, he uh, again, according to the story, then he was um, he took off into the countryside, but. Uh, they uh, the word spread that the, he'd been given the 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 robe and bowl, and uh, other members of the community were very upset about this and wanted to track him down. And despite what the fifth patriarch was saying, they, they thought he must have stolen it or he's tricked him or he's this isn't fair. We've got to stop this. So they chased after him, and one of the monks who used to be a soldier, who was the one who uh, who caught up with him, and Queen Anne could see him coming, think, okay, well. I'm not going to get away from this this guy. So he put the robe and bowl down on a rock and, and hid behind it. And then the uh, the um, this monk, he used to be a soldier, said, oh, there's the robe and bowl. Well, okay, I'll, uh, Queen Ings obviously kind of run off and left them, and I'll, I'll, I'll just take these and go back to the monastery. But when he went to pick them up, he couldn't lift them. He's a big, burly fellow, and he couldn't, he couldn't lift up this robe and the arms bowl. And then... Um, and then Huineng appeared from behind the rock and said, "You know, <laughs> only the person who owns it can, can can lift it." And then also that dialogue between them—that's uh, one of the places where, um, uh, in that again, it's, it, I won't go into it in detail. But uh, <clears throat> when the the this monk who used to be a soldier um, is kind of impressed with the fact that he can't lift up this robe and bowl, but Huineng can, he realizes. I think this kid has actually got something to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's, obviously, it must be the, the real thing. And then during that dialogue, uh, then Huineng says, uh, show me your original face before your mother and father were born. Show me your face before your mother and father were born. And, uh, <laughs> and that became one of the, the famous um, sort of meditation themes, the koans that uh, have been used in this Chan tradition for many, many years. So I feel this, this uh, is a... Um, very insightful verse, um, and uh, speaking about the uh, um, uh, you know, the mirror that has to be kept clean. That uh, by you know the, the dust lands on our mind. All these collators come along. You have to you know wipe this uh, wipe this uh, the mind clean so that the the kilesas, the dust of the world won't uh, won't accumulate. But uh, Huineng's insight is that originally there is not a single thing. You know, where could the dust alight? And there's there's no there's no thing really there, and there's no place for it to land. So um, all this talk of of, uh, the, of uh, cleaning, uh, wiping the the mind free of its dust, is looking at things in in a very uh, worldly or, or mundane way, and it's it's missing the the genuine insight that in terms of uh, true wisdom, there there is originally there is not a single thing. That, that as in that other dialogue, the Buddha is saying, the, you know, the eye belongs to you, Mara. The, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. Those belong to you, yes. But uh, do you know where that, uh, that uh, where, the, where um, as he says, um, where there is no eye, no forms, no eye contact, and its base of consciousness, there is no place for you there, evil one. So in a similar way, Huineng is saying that, uh, that there is... Uh, uh, a mind which is really awake doesn't give anything a place to land. There, uh, there's no dust, and uh, dust is empty, and there's nowhere for it to land. So, it's taking a whole different 
level of uh, uh, establishing a whole different level of, of insight and understanding. Ajahn Chah was very fond of this uh, this teaching because it was um, Ajahn Buddhadasa translated into Thai both the Sutra of Huineng and also the teachings of Huang Po. And uh, so, uh, so one of the, Ajahn Chah was familiar with this uh, with this teaching and the the story of Huineng. And uh, in a, a couple of his Dhamma talks, he particularly talks about the the flag, um, the image of the flag and the wind. And that was uh, after 16 years. Uh, Huineng lived in the forest and with a group of hunters. You know, if you're a Buddhist um, and vegetarian, living in the forest with a group of hunters is a good place to hide. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he, he he maintained his his vegetarian standards, living with a group of hunters. But after 16 years, then he emerged from hiding, and there was a big Dharma assembly, and there was this. Um, debate going on uh, uh, amongst these different um, uh, monastics about the flag uh, waving uh, uh, was it the the flag that was moving or was it the wind the wind that was moving you know what is it that's moving and then Huineng still as a layman steps up and says neither it's neither the flag nor the wind that is moving venerable sirs it is your minds that are moving again they realize who is this guy (laughs) so then they invited him forward and they realized this is a very unusual person, and uh, uh, eventually uh, he told the story of who he was and, and uh, how he came to that kind of uh, understanding that he did. And so then, shortly afterwards, he uh, was ordained as a, a monk, and then ended up being a very, uh, very, very influential teacher, and was recognised as rightfully the, the sixth uh, patriarch of the, the Chan school. So any questions, thoughts, reflections? Dusty or dustless? In terms of of Dharma practice, and uh, it's also very closely related to that, um, (coughs) the earlier teaching with the... um, Vinyanang Anidasanang, the uh, consciousness which is, um, uh, I think we had a reading on that already from the Kevada Sutta, where it's where long and sh- the where the um, where is it the earth, water, fire, and wind? Uh, the question was originally, where is it the earth, water, fire, and wind uh, cease without remainder? And then the Buddha says, you're asking the question in the wrong way. You, there is, you, you shouldn't ask, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind uh, cease without remainder? Rather, you should ask, where is it that earth, water, fire, and wind can find no footing? And then he uses this this, this phrase that Lumpur Sumato is very, very fond of, Vinyanang Anidasanang Anantang Sabato Pabang, which um, is uh, translated as the um, the the consciousness where is this find that the consciousness which is non-manifestative endless lustrous on all sides here it is that earth and water fire and wind no footing find here again are long and short subtle and gross pleasant and unpleasant name and form all cut off without exceptions when consciousness comes to cease 
is I held in check here, herein. That's Bhikkhu Nyanananda's translation. So in terms of, of our practice of meditation, um, that is also, uh, and also talking about, uh, say, Lumpur Dun, Lumpur Cha, talking about the the mind's relationship to emotions, like uh, anger and such like, that which is not giving them a landing place, the, the mind where it gives no footing, long and short, coarse and fine, pure and impure, that that uh, the mind which doesn't give them a landing place, that the, there's lot, the, we experience plenty of dust, I'm sure, dusty states of mind, loving, hating, opinionating, and everything in between, <clears throat> but uh, sustaining the quality of, of uh, awakened awareness, then as those uh, feelings or thoughts, perceptions, images uh, take shape in the mind, then the, the sustaining uh, establishment and sustaining of insight is this <coughs> is not giving them uh, a place to land and seeing these uh, uh, empty forms, empty perceptions that yeah, arise and cease according to nature's laws and that they don't have to be grasped, they don't have to be identified with, they don't have to be suppressed. Uh, but uh, as it says, the one who knows the world goes to the world's end. But that's, uh, that's that clear awakened knowing uh, and not claiming that's what we mean by not giving them a place to land, not giving them a place to land, not uh, uh, giving them any kind of substantiality. Is that when he, the monk at the beginning says, Dharma, I think I don't accept my anger. Yes. So I was wondering, because that word accept is usually, there's an idea that you feel what you're feeling fully, and in that process I got an idea that it was accepting, but by him saying he doesn't accept it, it kind of confused me a bit, but that sounds like... Yeah, it's a, the, the word, the Thai word that he uses is, uh, it says me then my ao, and that ao um, is like, it's not receiving, or it's like a um, not, it's not claiming it, not owning it. That kind of, no, that kind. Of, yeah. Sutisa, is that? Yeah, it's just like. So it's not. It's not based on uh, aversion, but just uh, it's like okay, that's been delivered to the wrong address. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Return to sender. It's not being picked up or claimed. Hmm? Well, it's it's a it has a broadness of of meaning. It's like it's not suppressive in any way. It's just like that that dialogue with the Buddha. With there's this um. Uh, he, he later became an arahant, so he's known as he's an arahant called Bharadvaja the Abusive. It became his nickname, Akosaka Bharadvaja, and that uh, he was a Brahmin, and he got very upset because the Buddha was was teaching, and uh, all these Brahmins were becoming his disciples, and hanging out with all these people from different castes. He was, so he was a very sort of purist Brahmin. And he's, he's very upset that the Buddha's having this effect on his people and uh, society. And so he's really in a big huff. And he, he goes to the Buddha and and criticizes him for corrupting society and being a bad influence and causing trouble. And so then the, the Buddha says, can I ask you a question, Bharadvaja? 
And he says, yes. <laughs> and he said, well, it, uh, is it the case that sometimes you have friends or relatives that come to visit your house? Yes, of course. Yeah, I'm an ordinary citizen. Of course, I've got plenty of family and friends. People come to visit. Why do you ask? He says, well, if you have family or friends that come to visit, is it the case that you would offer them some kind of refreshment, some sort of food or drink, or if they come to visit? Yeah. Uh, would you do that? Well, of course I do. That's just a normal, polite thing to do. Yes, absolutely. And why not? Well, so if one of your family or friends comes to visit and you offer them some food or drink and they, and they decline it, then to whom does that food and drink belong? Well, it belongs to me, of course. They haven't accepted it, so it's mine. He said, Bharadvaja, you offer me your anger, but I don't accept it, so it belongs to you. <laughs> and so... Um, he was very impressed by that, <laughs> and uh, and then uh, you know it happened. The, the turnaround happens very quickly. Yeah, I, I probably was not quite so fast in real life. But he immediately becomes a, a, a disciple of the Buddha, and later becomes a an arahant. But he's still known as the abusive, even when he's an arahant. So that uh, you, you know, sometimes our reputations stay with us. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, so, but that's a very good example where the Buddha is completely unintimidated by this sort of aggressive attack, and uh, he he says it belongs to you, Brahman. It belongs to you. It's yours. I'm not picking it up. You know, you're attacking me. You offer me your anger, but I don't accept it. So that it's uh, Lumpur Dun is talking about that in the, in the, in in a, in in a way like his own um, looking at his own sort of uh, reflexive. Impulses, or, or the, the 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 conditioning of his own mind, that uh, he can see an angry impulse arising, but recognizing, well, what's I got to do with anything real? I mean, I, I, it's that's how I understand it. That's how I, I read it. That's because you understand that it's just a perception or a mental formation. Well, the, or like I was saying about the the arahant can't follow those, can't act in a way based on hatred. It's impossible. So like Ajahn Chah, when the, the palmist read Ajahn Chah's hands and said, well, you've got a lot of anger. And he said, yes, but I don't use it. So it's like the, that impulse or that, that feeling might arise, but it's just like a joke. It's like, well, that can't be acted on. Or, that's, that's, or recognizing somebody's attractive, you know, that, there's, you know, that would be sexually desirable. Something's frightening. Say, so, oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> But yeah, the, 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 it's there, but there's not, there's no emotional engagement. So again, I think I feel it's really a very significant teaching that arahants can't act out of fear or can't act out of de uh, delusion. They can, they can be, they can't act based on that. They can see delusion. Like, like when Ajahn Chah was was uh, brain damaged at the end of his life, he could see that his mind wasn't working. Properly, yeah. People would uh, uh, people would speak to him, and then the wrong words would come out. He tried to respond to them, but the wrong words would come out. Yeah, they'd say, oh, "You know, good morning, Lumpur," and he'd say, "You know, red fish today." And he realized, "Red fish today? What?" <laughs> but what he meant to say was, was "Good morning." You know. But the, but he knew that the wrong words had come out. But he he couldn't just will his thoughts to unscramble. But he knew 
this is this is scrambled, and so that that um, uh, that <clears throat> it's good to reflect on uh, on this because sometimes we feel that oh if if my practice was really good then I'd never be afraid, or I'd never feel irritation, or I'd never feel desire, or, you know I'd never feel I never have deluded states, but it's it's not at least my reading of, of this my understanding of it is. It's like no, you can you can watch a, a a mind in a state of delusion. You can watch a deranged mind, because that which knows derangement isn't deranged. It's a seeing. If you to, to the mind can know this is really crazy, <laughs> and not be uh, to know it, and to know that you know maybe you're ill, you got a fever or your or dementia, but you can know this is this is really untrustworthy. Uh, this is really you know, confusing and crazy. This is uh, this is not to be relied on. That the the wisdom faculty can be there, even while those deluded states are there, or, or something's very frightening, or you know something that's really irritating. Like that, the, <clears throat> they can know. Well, that's exactly what I didn't want to happen. Right. <laughs> it's still exactly. It's still what you didn't want to happen. But the, the the heart can't follow that. It can't engage with it. There's, there's no landing place for it. Oh, that's a really good place. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough for today.